Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing well on this fine Sunday morning. By the looks on your faces, you have had good news and you've had bad news this week. I just want to take a little poll. How many of you have had some good news this week? Raise them high. Oh, I'm jealous. How many of you have had bad news this week? How many of you have had a little bit of both, good news and bad news? Well, you're right in step with the Scriptures this morning because, quite frankly, in the book of Acts, we're seeing good news and we're seeing bad news. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But I'm thinking about if you're a pastor, all the good news and bad news things that happen to pastors. I, I've kind of compiled a few of these. See if uh, you might relate. Maybe this has happened to Scott or I. You'll just have to decide. The good news. Last summer, we baptized like 20 people in the ocean. Bad news. We lost two of you to the riptide. Good news. I was sick last week, but the ministry team, the women's ministry team wrote me a get well card. The bad news, it only passed five to four. That's not true. It was unanimous. The good news, the elder board has accepted your job description. Now it gets a little apocryphal. The good news is the elder board has accepted your job description the way you wrote it. The bad news, they were so inspired by it, they also formed a search committee to find someone capable of filling that new position. The good news the women's softball team won a game. The bad news, they beat your men's team. The good news, the trustees voted to add more church parking. The bad news, they decided to blacktop the front lawn of your parsonage. The good news, church attendance rose dramatically the last three weeks. The bad news, you were on vacation. The good news, the deacons want to send you to the Holy Land. The bad news, they're stalling until a war breaks out. That's horrible. And now, true one, we got it right here in our own church. The bad news was last week, Pastor Scott says we need to raise $51,000 for our parking lot. The good news, as of last week, we have all the funds we need. The bad news is it's still in your pockets. Oh, gotcha. So... That's where we're headed this morning in Acts chapter 6. If you take, I know it was shameless. Acts chapter 6, let's look at the good news, bad news scenario that's been going on in the book of Acts. We see that Peter preaches this great sermon. Hundreds of people come to faith in Christ and then gets in trouble with religious leaders. We have Barnabas who gives away land and donates it to the church. Bad news is Ananias and Sapphira try to pull a fast one over the church. The good news in this text, the church is growing like crazy, but the bad news, there are some folks who are complaining because they think they're getting slighted. And so we see this good news, bad news scenario continuing in our text today. Look at the complaint, and if you don't have your notes, go ahead and grab those, ready to take notes. The complaint in verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose from the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Circle Hellenists and Hebrews. I'm going to come back to that, and we'll take a look at it. Now, the disciples are increasing. The last time we got a number count was in chapter 4, verse 4. There was 5,000 counted. That only counted men in their numbering system. Many more were there, including women and children. We're guessing at this point there might be as many as 20,000 people circling Jerusalem that have become disciples. It always cracks me up when churches are growing and they say, oh, your, our church is getting too big. I want to have 
the New Testament church. I want to go back to those days. Really? You want to go back to those days of 20,000 people? That's the original megachurch. So if you think our church is getting too big, which I don't think it is, but if you do and you want to go back to early church, the good news is you could be a part of that as our church continues to grow. Now, that begs the question, is there an optimal size for a church? I don't know how many people you think we have here, but on average we have between four or 500 people and more than that that call themselves, that calls ABF their church home. And in fact, we were doing a little analysis this past week. This time period last year compared to this year, we've grown by about 24%. That's a lot of new people sitting in this church just one year from a year ago. And we believe that the optimal size of a church keeps these two things in tension. Number one, that people are growing in their faith and are becoming disciples, not just hearers, not just church pew sitters or seat sitters, but actual disciples who are reproducing themselves, but also a church that cares for its flock, that cares for what's going on in the body as well as outside the body. And that tension is a real one as our church continues to grow. So that's the good news the church was growing. The bad news is you see those two words, Greek, speaking, uh, the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking widows feel like the Hebrew-speaking widows are being favored in the daily distribution of food. They're getting preferential treatment. Because there were so many widows attached to the early church, the church had taken on the responsibility of caring for those folks, and that was consistent with Jewish law at that time. In fact, a woman, as you know, in Jewish culture was dependent on her husband or another relative. That's why when a husband died, a distant relative would then take the responsibility, usually a brother. In the book of Ruth, we hear of the concept of the kinsman redeemer. And so the care of widows was expected in Jewish society. It was mandated in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 29, and other passages. And Paul continues that theme later on in 1 Timothy 5, 3, He defines that as a responsibility of the church. So church, it's our responsibility. If we have widows or orphans who are part of our body, it's our responsibility to come alongside those folks. And our modern-day widows oftentimes are not actually widows, but they're uh, divorced, they're they're single parents, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're trying to follow Scripture here. Now, we know that in that culture, oftentimes widows would have been the poorest people, the disadvantaged segment of the church, almost always going to be poor and certainly often taken advantage of and oppressed. And so how are we doing about that? Uh, Last time I preached was just a few weeks ago, and I mentioned that we had someone who was attending the church regularly now who came through the feeding program that we do on Monday nights, and as a result, got invited by a wonderful lady in our church. She brought her to church, showed her the ropes. She got involved in my life group in my small group, and as it came out, at that time, she was kind of couch surfing in Pasadena. She she's kind of bouncing around, had slept in her car a few times. I just said, hey, if you've got a room, we've got people who need places to stay. One of the ladies came forward and said, hey, I've got a place for her if she needs a place. We explored that. It wasn't going to work out. But an amazing thing happened. Someone else donated a, a, a sum of money and said, hey, I want to be able to help out in any way possible. There's enough money now to get pay for first, last month's rent, and the security deposit, and hopefully she'll be in her own place here before Christmas. That's because you listened, God moved in your hearts, and God answered prayer. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's the kind of church that just doesn't talk about, you know, caring for people, but actually does something and 
God bless you for doing that. So the problem here is this complaint is a symptom of a deeper problem. The early church is dividing into two camps. There's some racial division. The Hebrews, those are the Aramaic natives, the, the, the Christians. They're, they're Palestinian. They were Jews who spoke Aramaic. They grew up there. They're in Jerusalem. They're the insiders. And they didn't hide their contempt for the Greek-speaking brethren. The Hellenists are those that are Greek-speaking. And, and you say, well, where did they come? And the, you've heard this word, the diaspora or the dispersion. Remember when Israel was spread across the four corners of the earth in 722, when the northern kingdom was invaded by the Assyrians in 586, the southern kingdom was invaded by the Babylonians, Jews were spread out all over Asia. And now they're migrating back to Jerusalem. They came back for Pentecost. They get saved because of Peter's sermon. And there's hundreds of these people who are not insiders and quite frankly felt like they were outsiders. And the point being is, those folks felt their widows were being slighted in the food distribution program. So what is this all about here? Early, you know, we're in six chapters into this study. Is this the first example of racial tension in the church? I think it might be. It could also, some people, oh, no, it's not really that. It's just the, the church is growing. It needs some organizational structures as it grows. Either way, it's divisive. It's potentially divisive. We could have those kinds of things divide us if we're not careful. Political factions in a church. Who did you vote for? That could be divisive. You know, how you spend money, what, you know, all kinds of topics that are not germane to what we're about here. And so they have to have a conversation, don't they? Look at verse 2, and there's a dilemma. Here's the dilemma the apostles are facing. And the 12 summoned... The full number of the disciples, that's more than the 12, it's, it's the, the group that's grown since Pentecost, and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, at first glance, that seems a little pejorative, like, really? I mean, you, it's, it's beneath you to serve tables? No, 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 get the context here. The bottom line is they realize there's a problem. They're not trying to minimize the problem. They're just trying to figure out what are the priorities for them and what God's called them to do. Serving tables wasn't beneath them. It just wasn't what they were called to do. And so they didn't personally have time to adjudicate all this, the, the meal program that's going on. And so it wasn't that they didn't care, but they had to figure out their role in this growing church. It is not unlike when people said, how come we're not doing anything with the homeless? And Gina came up. Gina Kusana said, I have a burden for that. And Pastor Scott, well, I've got a plan for you. The two of them met, and she heads up the Caneo Valley Meal Program. And it takes 30 of you every time we do that to bring food and stuff. And we still need someone to cook the bacon, just a reminder for tomorrow. All right. That's the good news. The bad news is the apostles are saying, we can't get so down in the weeds of ministry that we're ha serving meals and handling money because we're going to neglect the thing that was most important. And what was that according to what we just read? The what? The ministry of God's Word. Now, this word to service, where we get the word, our word deacon, and whether it was just about the meals or whether it was about handling money, the bottom line is we got to do something. They knew it was a big issue, and they decided they would do something. Now, we have needs that come up all the time. People call us, they, you know, they said, hey, we need help with this, that. And as you know, we take a deacon's fund offering every month. And, and uh, it's interesting because we have a guy in our uh, church here, Stan Deacon, who helps administer 
that fun. So I'm preaching about, you know, I know I'm going to preach about this, about how we have to care for people in need. And last Thursday night, I get a phone call. And by the way, I do this with permission today. I get a phone call from a lady who we've helped in the past, but it's at 5.30, you know, and, and the service is at 7. No one's asking the phone, so I pick up the phone. Note to self, pastor, don't pick up the phone after 5.30 when Nancy's gone because you never know who you're going to talk to. Well, I get into about a 30, 40-minute conversation with this lady, and, you know, I just said, well, you know, we normally just cut our checks on Tuesday, and, and we'll definitely help you out, but I, I think your greater need is you've got to connect with a church closer to you in, in Redondo Beach, and we had this really nice conversation. She's so complimentary of Stan and Nancy from the previous time we helped her a couple of years ago, and she, real genuine conversation. And I kind of left it, and I think the best way is if you go visit this other church first, and then we'll help you, and we kind of left it, and all oh, that, but I got to know because I got to go preach. So I'm feeling a little tension because I got to go preach, but then I'm preaching on something, and I'm going, oh, Irwin, you are just so slow here, aren't you? So I don't sleep well Thursday night, I'll be honest with you. I kind of felt like I should call her back and not make her wait till Tuesday, and I got really convicted. I really did. And so I was busy most of the day um, Friday, and about, oh, I don't know, three or four o'clock, I finally got back to the church. I didn't have her number. I call her. I say, hey, this is Pastor John, and the response was awesome. She goes, I can't believe you called back. And I said, I want to be a guy that practices what I preach, and I kind of felt like I was pushing you off a bit to deal with this on next week, and I don't think that's right. I just want you to know that I'm going to get a check cut for you and we'll get it signed and if you can come by today, I'll, I'll just give you the check. I still think your greater need is we've got to get you plugged into another church and I have a little plan for her about how she we can help her a little more by getting involved with a friend's church of mine down there. But no strings attached. Just come and I'll, I'll give you that check today. Well, she showed up today and I, I said with permission, I'm not going to introduce her to you, but she's here today and and she, she is blessed because of you, because you give. And that's what we do with that fund. We bless people who need it. And we do it for the sole reason we want to say that God loves you. That God loves you and wants you to see that this gift is a way of sharing his love with you. And so that's what they were up against. It's not that it's not important, but who does all this? And thank goodness we have guys like Stan who, who most of the time handles all this stuff and then says, Pastor John, I think we should do this. And I get the best part of all. I get to pray with people and give them money. It's an awesome, awesome thing. So what's their decision? Look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom will appoint this duty. So back to good news. They've made a decision to expand the leadership team. There's seven more godly men to stand in the gap and serve. That's awesome. And the, this is consistent with Jewish culture at the time. These seven men were part of a team, and they formed this office of uh, charity distribution, so to speak. Now, some would say this is where we see the first example of deacons in the New Testament. It may or may not be. It's interesting to note that moving forward in the book of Acts, you don't hear about these guys. In fact, I'll share something interesting in just a moment. Uh, you hear only the office of elders. But the bottom line is they select these men, and it, it meets a response to a, an immediate crisis that's happening in the church. So some of you have asked me, so do we have like deaconesses and deacons here at ABF? Whether or not this is the mandate for that, we, in times past, we've actually had 
official groups of women called deaconesses and official group of men called deacons. And especially when the church was without pastoral leadership, man, those, those folks, may your tribe increase, just stood in the gap and really ministered in a number of ways here at the church. But like is typical, when a new pastor comes, which Pastor Scott did come a little, almost five years ago this coming March, the new pastor comes, what is the inevitable response of people who've been standing in the gap for weeks, months, and years? They go, what? Whew, glad the pastor's here. Here, take this stuff. Now, you didn't quite do that. I want to I commend you. You didn't quit in his first month. It was the next month. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but there were some people who had worked a long time, and they needed to take a breath. And so what we've done is we don't have the same exact structure today, but we do have a, a number of people who work behind the scenes who care for the needs of our church. I mentioned Stan is one of them. Alan Cagle's another guy who serves in the gap kind of like that. Dave Ireland in the front row. We have godly men and women who serve behind the scenes, meeting the needs, the care needs of, of the people in our church. So that's the good news. They found those guys. We kind of have, I'm definitely answering the question, we, we kind of have deacons. They're just not nominated, elected, uh, but they are serving. More importantly is what were they supposed to be like? What was their character? And if you look at your text, there were three character qualities of these godly men. Now, when I was a youth pastor, I used to recruit high school volunteers. And I wish I would have read this text before I recruited them. Uh, but I had another acronym. I wanted FAT. FAT, not P-H-A-T. FAT volunteers. And that stood for faithful, available, and teachable. And if you could do those three things, you could work with high school kids. Now, that was a good acronym, and it was cute, but that's not biblical. So let me give you the three characteristics that if we want to serve, that we should be kind of striving toward. The first one is that they were of good repute. In other words, write down the word good reputation. They're going to handle large sums of money. They're going to be distributing food. They have to have a good reputation. They've got to be well-known and respected. Number two, they were full of the Holy Spirit. More importantly, they are yielded to God, if you want to write that. Holy Spirit yieldedness. God permeated their lives. It was evident that he was directing their lives. And then thirdly, they are full of wisdom. In other words, they were wise guys, not Italian wise guys, other kind of wise guys. By the way, we know the difference between intelligence and wisdom, right? There are a lot of smart people. Raise your hand if you know. How many of you know a really smart person who's made a really stupid decision? Anybody ever know? And it doesn't have to be self-biography there. But we all know people who are smart that sometimes don't think, right? Well, these are guys who can think. They apply their knowledge wisely. It's kind of like sanctified common sense. In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, the men of Issachar were described like this. They were men who understood the times. Who was the wisest guy in the Old Testament? His name was Solomon. And why was he wise? Because he did something really smart. He asked God for wisdom, and that's what God gave him. And he made incredible decisions seem simple because of his wisdom. The book of James says, if you lack wisdom, you should what? Ask of God who gives to all men generously without reproach, James 1.5. So these guys were of good reputation, yielded to God, and full of wisdom. We've been talking about the role of the Holy Spirit for several weeks now. And I want to make sure we're not confused about what we're talking about in terms of the role of the Spirit, because the role of the Holy Spirit, because they were full of the Spirit. It sounds like in every chapter, there's this new manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And what is God doing here? 
So I want to make sure we're clear on this. First and foremost, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, when God empowered them to do something, oftentimes you see the phrase that the Spirit came upon them. When that happens, was that a permanent thing or a temporary thing in the Old Testament? It's a temporary thing, and not because they did anything wrong, but God's empowering them for a specific uh, response, and then He moves on. In the New Testament, starting in Acts 2, at the day of Pentecost, after, and this is what Jesus promised, I, He would send a helper. After the, the preaching of, of the gospel in Acts 2, what happens when you become a Christian at that point from Acts 2 moving forward? Is that Holy Spirit temporary or permanent in your life? It's permanent. You have that, and I want to give you the scripture for that. Because some people say, oh, no, no, you can lose the Holy Spirit. Now, you can have conflict with God after you're a Christian. We're not talking about that because of your sin. But I'm talking about can you lose your salvation? Can you lose the Holy Spirit? I don't believe so. Look at what he does, five things, and you write these down, take it to the bank. Number one, he seals us and guarantees our salvation. 2 Corinthians 1.22, who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. A guarantee of what? A guarantee of our eternal security with him when we die in heaven. There's several other verses. We won't look at them today, but you could look those up. 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, Ephesians 1.14, Ephesians 4.30, all talk about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Number two, he fills and empowers us. Two things, he fills and empowers us. Ephesians 5.18 talks about that filling. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, someone said, if I get the Spirit at the moment of salvation, what is this filling? How is it different from the moment of salvation? Let me just explain it this way. How many of you like to be the boss? Just, just be honest. I don't care who you are. Raise it high. Don't let anybody put your arm down. You want, I want to see who the bosses are. What, what? This is kind of funny. Some of the men are like raising only this side, looking at their wives. Am I the boss? I'm not sure. All right. How many people want to be the boss? Come on. It's okay. All right. How many kind of like to make a plan and follow the plan? All right. How many of you like to kind of be in control? You like no surprises. All right. See, a lot of us are oriented that way. We're wired that way. But when we ask Christ to come in our lives, to be the Lord of our lives, we're saying, I want to give control of my life to you. And how we live that out is hard. It's difficult depending on how you're even wired personally. So here's the illustration. When you ask Christ to come in your life, the Holy Spirit comes in and he fills us. Now, the question is not that you're going to get more or less of the Spirit. You've got, you've got him. The question is, how much of you does he have? How much control do we really give up to him? So if the spiritual life is like driving a car, before we're Christians, we're driving our own car, right? And you can imagine whatever nice car you would someday like to drive. Imagine you're in that car, so it's worth a lot of money, and you don't want to crash it. So you're driving. When the Holy Spirit comes in your life at the moment of salvation, spiritually speaking, who's supposed to move out of the driver's seat? We are, right? So for some of us, we think we're doing a God a favor, and we move to the right side of the front seat, right? And we're fine with him driving as long as God takes us in the places, what? That we want to go when we get there and where we want to go and in our timing. And we're all good with that. But how many of you, when you've given God control of your life, have been sitting in the passenger seat riding shotgun, and you're going in a direction that you're not exactly sure God knows what he's doing? You'd never say that out loud because it doesn't seem like a Christian thing to think, right? And you kind of just do this yawn thing like, yeah, and you try to take hold of the wheel again, huh? 
And you try to drive from the passenger side. That gets you in problems because you get all these this, and it's not going to work. Some of you finally come to your sense and go, really, I, I can't do this. I really got to let God lead my life. And you go from the passenger seat to the back seat of the car. Now you're okay. So now God's the chauffeur. The problem is if he's your chauffeur, you tell him where to go if you're sitting in the back seat. Honestly, you got to be more like the six-year-old in the back seat, and you're going to go wherever daddy takes that car, right? So we're sitting in the back seat, and again, we're fine with that until the time at which we think maybe we don't trust God with what he's doing. And in a moment of desperation, you leap over the front seat, and you grab a hold of the wheels, and God's going, I got this. No, 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 I got this, right? Now, I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but I think that's what happens. The Holy Spirit needs all of you, not when it's convenient, not when it seems right to you. And then he empowers you in Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That power is that kind of ability for the Lord to lead and you to follow, that power. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. That's one we don't really like, John 16.8. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, not only the world, but us personally. So if you ever had that little twinge of conscience after you've become a Christian, that's the Holy Spirit saying, uh-uh. That knocking, that's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, hey, that's out of bounds. What are you thinking? Don't do that. And if you do do that, and, and there's a great easy solution, 1 John 1, 9, we confess that and we're back in right relationship. You don't lose your salvation, but you, you fix the relationship. Fourthly, he helps us. John 14, 16, he helps us. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. That helper is the Holy Spirit to be with you forever. Remember, the disciples are all freaked out when he's going to leave them. Hey, what are we going to do without you? He says, I'm going to send you the helper, and that's the Holy Spirit. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. Have you ever been in that conversation, and you were telling someone about the Lord, and you go, what was that verse? And you're, oh, Lord, help me, and boom. The verse or the right word comes to your mind, and you say it, and you go, ooh, I'm good. No, you're not good. You've got a great Holy Spirit who brought that back to your remembrance so you could say that, that apt word at the perfect time because the Holy Spirit will remind you. Then, fifthly, he intercedes for you in Romans 8, 26, and 27. That's our fifth, fifth and last one. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness where we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. You don't have to raise your hands, but just think with me out loud. Has there been a time where you've been praying for something and praying for something and it just, there's, you feel like there's just no answer? Or it's not, you're just wondering, well, what's God doing here? Or maybe you prayed and prayed and you're just exhausted because you're just like, will this ever come about? Will my husband ever come to know the Lord? Will my loved one ever quit suffering this unbelievable pain? And Lord, would you just take that person home? You don't want them to die in pain. Or you've got someone you love so much, but they're so far from God, and maybe it's a child or a grandchild, and, and you're just frustrated in your prayer, and you pray, and then sometimes you're like, you just can't pray. The marriage isn't getting fixed. The kid isn't getting better. The parent is estranged, whatever the issue is, the Holy Spirit is the one who in those times where you can't even picture the words, you can't mouth the words, you can't say the words, he'll intercede on your behalf. That's amazing. 
And so when I've ever been in those places, I say, Lord, I need you to understand what's going on in my heart. I just can't even say it, but Lord, you know. And I think this is what the Holy Spirit does in our life. And so these guys were of good reputation. They were full of spirit, and, they, and these things were true of their lives. So th- they have a calling, though, right, the, the, the apostles. And here's what their decision is. Look at verse 4. But, this is all important, but we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of God's Word. So they're solving the problem, but they're reemphasizing the priority. By the way, that's a pastoral thing we do all the time. We've got to solve problems, but stay focused on the priorities of the church. Scott and I face that all the time. So the primary ministry, and by the way, before it was just the ministry of the Word, he thinks better and says, oh, and prayer in the ministry of the Word. Prayer is the first. I'm not saying it's the most important, but I think that it's saying it's equally important. And so the good news is they make the decision. Now, this is really appropriate for where we're at, a a growing church. You know, being up 24%, there are a lot more needs here. We need a lot more help, a lot more of you to step up, and you are volunteering to serve. Because if we're looking at our job description as pastors, we need to be focused on prayer and the Word of God. So in a moment of confession, again, let me just just ask you, and you can vote and just tell me what you think. We'll see how well you, you know me. I won't be speaking for Scott on this one. How many think that I probably have an easier time praying for you or preaching? Uh, praying or studying God's Word and teaching? Praying or ministering the Word, all right? By a show of hands, how many think I have an easier time of praying for you? Thank you, you dear souls, all four of you. How many think that I have an easier time of preaching and ministering God's Word? Yeah, like nine to one. All right. So you know, I like this. I mean, I'm energized. This is like a football game to me. It's kickoff time. It's go time. Let's deal with God's Word. Let's teach. Let's... I love studying God's Word. I love preparing sermons. I love sharing them. Praying. Yeah, that is hard work. And so that's why when you ask me to pray for you, I usually stop you right there. Let's pray right now. It's for two practical reasons. One, so I won't forget. And two, that I actually do it. I'm just going to be honest with you, all right? I think I'm kind of the normal pastor. I think most of us have an easier time sharing God's word than disciplining ourselves to pray. And we put some safeguards around that. When we do the care journals, part of the reason I say that every week is because I feel like I need, that's every Monday when I get all 60 of those or 100 of those, I try to pray through those personally. I try to, I don't always write you at all this email, but sometimes I send you an email and say, hey, I prayed for you today. So that's one little discipline. The other thing is, I should have been a lot better at modeling this in my own family. I'll just be honest with you, right? And if you're a young parent and you're a dad, you're thinking, well, I pray with my family all the time. I pray for the evening meal. You go, dad. That's a good start, but there's a little more than just praying for the meal, right? We'd all say that. That's kind of like training wheel prayer, right? That's good, but how do we pray more? So as a young husband, everybody told me, well, you should pray the last thing before you go to bed. It shouldn't be like watching TV. You should have a little devotions and pray together and then go to bed. Okay, I'm, I'm up for that. So we're, it's our first year of marriage, and I'm married to a prayer warrior. I mean, this girl can pray. She's good at it. So we, we're praying in bed. That's a big mistake if you're a man, all right? So we're praying in bed. So here's how it goes. She prays for like four or five minutes, which seems like four or five hours. And by the time I'm up to pray, I pray for like, 40 seconds, and I feel like it's been like five hours, and it's like I, I barely get 
yeah, you're laughing. It's true. I know. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm horrible. So the bottom line is we're praying like that, and then she goes off for like another six or seven minutes. Have you ever had time six or seven minutes? That's an eternity in prayer. I'm in bed. I'm trying to keep my eyes open, and so I just, I'm lame. I go, oh, I second that in prayer, Lord. I, amen to that. Thank you, my dear loving wife. You've, she did all the praying, and I'm doing all the listening, and I'm just doing my second. Then the third round, she's praying some more, and by that time, it's predictable. Where am I? Where's my head in the game? Here's where it is. I fall asleep. Not just once. I mean several times. And I know it irritated her, but this, my sweet wife never said anything, and I'm falling asleep in, in prayer. That was, that was lame. I got I to gotta do this a different way. You'd think we'd have solved that in year one. To my shame, I mean, it was 29 years of like, oh, this is painful. I just, we've been married 39. So somewhere about 10 years ago, we finally figured it out. Here's somebody going, thank goodness our pastor finally figured it out. We're following this yo-yo? Oh, my goodness. So here, by the way, if I share this because maybe you struggle with praying and staying focused and staying consistent. So about 10 years ago, I came with this idea, we should just walk and pray. A, because I don't sleepwalk, so if I'm walking, I'll be awake. That's a practical one. And number two, no, no, you know, no distractions. We're just walking. So about 10 years ago, we started walking and praying. We try to do it in the morning. We have a 30-minute route. We have a 45-minute route. We have a 60-minute route. So we're getting a little cardio. So for you men who like to multitask, wear your Fitbit. Oh, I got my extra steps in. And I earn brownie points because I'm listening to my wife. And by the way, we don't pray straight through for an hour. We're talking. We're praying. We're talking. We're praying. We're yielded. We're bonding together because we're communicating. And we're praying for our kids. We're praying for you. We're praying for the things that God lays on our heart. So this morning, I knew I was going to pray this. I was going to tell you this. And I knew, I knew someone would ask me, so when's the last time you walked and prayed with your wife? Is you, have you just, well, it was this morning. But I'll be honest with you, I knew I was going to say this. So I better pray this morning. But I said, so I, I got to, honey, we got to get up and walk and pray. She goes, it's cold outside. I know, but it's important. We need to do it. Why? You'll find out why she was here first service. So try it. Try it. If you're a sleeper in your prayer, walk and pray. See if it works. But the bigger deal is pray for us that Pastor Scott and I and others on staff, that we keep our right priorities, that we don't get distracted with all the other stuff that we could be consumed with. It's all important stuff. We need your help. We love that you're stepped up to do it. Well, they commissioned these individuals in verses 5 and 6, and we see the individuals they chose in verse 5. Look at it. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Stop. This is the first time in all of church history the entire church agrees. That's amazing. They, it pleased everybody. Usually, you, you know, somebody's going to be disappointed. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and then five guys you're never going to hear of again in the New Testament. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and a, uh, who was a proselyte of Antioch. Who are those other guys? Well, the good news is they found a solution. It's amazing consensus. Everybody buys in, and they choose these seven guys. Now, interesting, if you look at their names, you don't notice this, but they're all Greek names, implying they picked the seven from the side that was feeling disenfranchised. It's a smart move. They had the apostles who represented the Aramaic-speaking uh, population. These are the Greek speakers. Now, only two of them are ever mentioned again in the New Testament. Who are they? They're the first two, Stephen and Philip. 
Now, what do we know about Stephen? Well, we're going to study him next week, and it doesn't end well for him by the end of chapter 7. There's, there's going to be another murder mystery going on here. Uh, there's no mystery. Stephen is the first martyr in the church, and in fact, it's his death that catapults Christianity across the world. Then Philip, you'll hear about him in chapter 8, because he's the guy who uh, does evangelism with the Ethiopian eunuch. Say that out loud three times, Ethiopian eunuch. That's an interesting one to talk about. Anyway, the bottom line, he's going to do evangelism. And then in chapter 21, we hear this little sidebar that he has four daughters who are prophetesses. That's it. The other guys, we don't even know. Now, Prochorus, uh, some think that he was like the ghostwriter for the Apostle John. Maybe he helped write the Gospel of John and the Revelation. Nicholas, we know he's a Gentile convert to Judaism from Antioch. That's it. The other guys we never hear of again. So the bad news, who are those other five? They just, they just did this in obscurity. They're never mentioned again. But this is what's amazing. Those, we have their names, that's about it. Those men stood in the gap and met a need in the early church when it could have been really dicey, when there could have been major division over this, where the apostles could be completely distracted from the mission. And they do it in obscurity. They're unsung heroes. Friends, some of you in this church, you're the unsung heroes here. It's not us you. May your tribe increase. It would have been really cheesy, but I thought of that Ray Bolt song, thank you for giving the Lord, and we'd get our Bic lighters out, and we'd sing it, and we'd be crying, and you know, but it's really true. Those people in this church, and you know who you are, just serve silently behind the scenes, and no one even knows what you do. God bless you, because you're making a difference not everybody gets to be a worship leader. Not everybody preaches God's word. But everybody has a place at the table here to serve. Be an unsung hero today. Well, there's an installation in verse 6. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The good news is they prayed again. They commissioned them. Think about all the big decisions in the New Testament are bathed in prayer. Jesus spends four days in prayer before he starts his public ministry. He spends all night in prayer in Luke 6, 12, before he chooses the 12 disciples. At the transfiguration, he prays in Luke 9. Our decision's got to be bathed in prayer, and they did the same thing. And they lay hands on him. It's no spooky, wooky thing. It's just it's a way of conferring, like, hey, we're sending you out. We're commissioning you. We do that with our missionaries. It was done in the days of Moses in Numbers 27. So they're just following the tradition of, of commissioning these seven. And then we see the results to the church in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The good news, the church is continuing to grow. They don't, you know, kind of go off the rails because of this racial division or the church growth problems. They keep growing, the gospel spreading. At this time, anywhere from 8,000 to 18,000 priests are serving at that time. It's a huge, quote, uh, industry in the in Jewish culture. Some of those are, many of those are part-time, just like um, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, who was a part-time guy who, who was obedient to the Lord. But the bad news is this is what gets Stephen killed. He's a priest who leaves, and it doesn't go well for him, and you'll see about that in the next couple weeks. So the bad news, the church, this passage started with God's word possibly being neglected, but the good news is God's word expands in verse 7. 
And so we see this good news, bad news is a way of life in the early church. And quite frankly, it's a way of life in our, in our church. Right now, we're, and Chad's going to come, we're, we're riding this wave of good news at our church. Right? But just like the stock market, the good news can't always continue. Now, I'm not wishing us any bad news anytime soon, so let's just get this clear. We're enjoying this. Let's continue this. But we should not be surprised if sometimes we get bad news, both corporately and personally. And so we want to pray to this end as we close, that no matter whether we get the good news in our life or we get the bad news, whether God is growing our church or whether he's not growing our church, whether there's problems or there's not problems, we've got a God who makes a difference in our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I think sometimes we just want to live in the proverbial land of the good news. And yet we see that's just not the case. In the early church, there was good news, there was bad news. Just as you're working, there are things that are going on behind the scenes to try to take the church down. And I'm so glad there were men who were willing to serve in obscurity, who said, I'll stand in the gap so you can stay focused on what God's called you to do. I'm so grateful for people at ABF that allow Pastor Scott and I and others on this staff to focus on what you called us to do. Lord, I confess I need to bathe more of my decisions in prayer. I need to be more of a prayer warrior. I thank you for the ministry of your word this morning. May it change lives today. And we thank, we're thankful that you are the rock, no matter what happens to us, that we can stand by and on. In Jesus' name, amen. If that isn't something to cling to this week, no matter whether you get good news or bad news, you have the rock of your salvation. Jesus Christ is going to make a difference in your life. You know, the last two services, uh, I would be remiss to say we're talking about ministry of, of the word and prayer. And so today, um, like we did the last two services, if you want to be prayed for, I'm going to be available afterwards. Pastor Scott will be available to pray with you about anything. Go in peace today and know that Jesus Christ is the rock in the good news and the bad news. Have a great week. We'll see you later.